This is Gil Manser welcoming you to another Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers broadcast on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Tonight's conversation is with Anthony Award-winning writer Robin Bursell, who says, As a child, I wanted to be a spy when I grew up. I was going to wear those black turtlenecks and have this long flowing hair and climb into windows and in the middle of the night and blow things up. Instead, Robin spent almost three decades in law enforcement, including 18 years on active duty for the Lodi Police Department, before shifting to Sacramento County as a criminal investigator for the Department of Human Assistance. Robin and I had the chance to meet at the recent Sonoma County Book Festival, and I want to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you very much. So did you get to live out your childhood dreams? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess you could say I'm living them out in the, the uh, um, comfort of the armchair in front of my computer. Mm-hmm. So a little safer than, you know, traveling the world and blowing up things and saving the world from, you know, whatever latest conspiracy theory and danger might be out there. Right. But you do have the Highway 5 corridor danger. Well, I yes, there is that. <laughs> we have, you know, what is it, the... Uh, I five strangler or whoever he was, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah, you know. I mean, you know, you walk out your front door, you just never know what's going to happen. Right. Although you like Lodi because it's a community of, that's safer than the majority right now. Yes, yes, yes. It has a very um, safe crime rate, and it's one of the reasons why I chose to raise my children there. Right. I think it's interesting, and this is one of the things that our listeners like to hear: is that people have you know ongoing lives at the same time that they're creating these wonderful characters in their books. And you are a mother as well as a, uh, you know, a police-involved, per- in, you know, investigator. Law enforcement, right? Law enforcement. That's what you call it. Yes. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the department you work for in Sacramento. Um, well, we investigated welfare fraud and child care fraud. Um, some Medicare, Medi-Cal fraud type things, you know, would sometimes coexist. But mostly it was welfare fraud and child care fraud. So Department of Human Services. Department, yes, human assistance, human services, um, you know, they hand out welfare. And, you know, for instance, one of the cases I did um, was this woman was claiming to um, be working, Mm -hmm. and she paid her brother to be the babysitter, which under the current laws is, is legal. You can pay a relative to watch your children. Well, it turned out he was... In prison the entire time. Oh, when he was watching the yes, child? Yes, yes. So it's like, you know, what'd she do? Go drop him off at the lobby at the prison or something? And so probably not. Mm-hmm. And shortly, he died about three months into, um, three months after she actually changed child care providers, legally filled out paperwork saying, he's no longer going to be my provider, even though he'd been doing it for eight, nine years. Right. While he was in prison. While in prison. Right, yes. She forgot to mention that little detail. And and he died. And I'm thinking, why did she, three months before he died, all of a sudden come up with this new provider? And so I, I figured she had to have known that he was probably on his last legs for whatever right. reason. Right. You know, ill for some reason or, you know, some terminal illness. And it turns out that her new provider was actually herself. She <laughs> she had two Social Security numbers uh-huh. and, you know, two driver's license. It was her face on both of them, but right. two different names. Somehow she defrauded the Department of Motor Vehicles, Social Security Department, and the welfare agency. 
And so she was paying herself for the last, you know, X number of years. And this is a woman who had already been convicted of welfare fraud before she started this new fraud. So why she was even getting welfare and child care, you know, it's, it's meant as a service to assist people on to the next stage. You know, hopefully they'll get a job or whatever the case. Clearly that wasn't happening here. She was into it for well over $100,000 mm. of fraud. Mm. So tell me about how you – I remember in the conversation you had at the book fair, you said that you started out writing romance novels. <laughs> I did. My first book, When Midnight Comes, which is sadly out of print, um, a lovely story, fun, a little bit of murder, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of romance. Um, I told my husband that I had my foot in the door of the publishing world and we could have that second child now. Uh-huh. This is back in? 1994. Four-ish. Okay. <laughs> and so um, promptly got pregnant and ended up with twins. So <laughs> <laughs> needless to say, there was not a lot of romance left in my life. Oh. Yes. I know people sad. with triplets and they still have romance, <laughs> so I, I don't believe Well, let's that. just say for the next couple of years, I, my mind was uh, kind of gravitating a little more to the murder and mayhem side of fiction, at least. Right. And so I started writing my first mystery series, the Kate Gillespie mystery series, starting with Every Move She Makes and ending up with Cold Case. There's four books in that series, and mm-hmm. HarperCollins is going to be re-releasing them um, shortly. I'm not sure when, but they will be coming back oh, good. out. Okay. So right now they're hard to find because they are out of print. Now, do you have any of those with you that you can I, read I from? don't have. Okay, um, let me read something so people get a feeling of how this sounds because these are what are called in the trade police procedurals. This is from Deadly Legacy. Yes. All right. There was no way I was leaving this house until we'd searched it. I ran the license plate from our thug's car. Before it came back, Rocky had organized his entry team, and they were heading to the front door with two other uniformed officers. Gillespie, the first officer called out to me, holding up his radio. Dispatch is calling you. I was standing by the garage and had paused to hear what the dispatcher was saying. Rocky and the officers took a position at the front door, their guns drawn. The dispatcher repeated the plate of the goon's car and continued with, comes back stolen out of San Francisco. I wondered if Rocky had heard. He knocked on the door, then called, Police! We have a warrant! Standard procedure, even though we were pretty certain the place was unoccupied. Locked, he said, jiggling the lock. I'm going to kick it in. I hugged the wall at the bottom of the steps. Rocky moved back a few feet. He took aim, kicked at the door, and the whole damn thing exploded in a flash of fire. So, we got the (laughs) nitty-gritty police talk tile, um, you know, probably fairly simple for you because you do all those paperwork reports, right? Right, right. And knowing, you know, 97th Precinct kind of thing where it's that's how it started, mm-hmm. uh, laying down what was put down on paper and turning it into a dialogue. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Is that right? Um, you know, essentially that scene came from something that happened when, I, I guess what, what I'm trying to say is... I take things that really happen to me out in the streets and fictionalize them, put them in the book so that it gives the reader an authentic, um, yet one hopes entertaining portrayal of what Mm -hmm. police work would really be like. Obviously, names have been changed and uh, as our cities and and police officers are all fictional in this series. But in this case um, was from way back in Lodi when a couple of our officers were were searching a, 
a building and, and it exploded. Wow. Um, and, you know, so, you know, everything that happens to Rocky actually happened to one of our officers. He does survive this mm-hmm, instance. Mm-hmm. But in, in that particular story, Kate Gillespie is, um, she feels responsible because she was pulled off this case for doing something wrong. And this, she should have been at that door. She should have been the one injured. Now Rocky's in the hospital and... You know, it's it's sort of snow, snowballs from there. Right. So. So as the first female on the Lodi Police Department, what were your experiences that really you remember that stand out in your memory as being historic? And I'm talking about because you were the first <clears throat> female. Well, um, the first day, there was a detective who's actually now a very good friend of mine, um, and he's currently a PI after he retired, he became a PI. Mm. But um, on the first day on the job, the uh, captain walks me into detectives and introduces me to the men standing there. And he said, um, this is Robin. She's our first female officer. And this officer stands up in the back of the room and he says, I'm not ready for women on patrol yet. <laughs> and that was my first day on the job. And <laughs> I remember going home, telling my husband, Oh, my gosh, you're never going to guess what happened and, you know, relate the story. And he says, well, you need to go, you know, maybe talk to him and kind of smooth things out. And I said, it doesn't work that way. Right. So anyway, you know, just let it go. That's kind of water under the bridge kind of thing. Just, you know, go on out. Well, flash forward to about two months when I'm on the uh, FTO, Field Training Officer Program. Mm -hmm. And my first training officer is introducing me to my new second training officer. And who should it be but Mr. I am not ready for women on patrol yet? <laughs> and I can remember going home and telling my husband, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to pass this thing. And, you know, totally freaked out because I'm certain that this guy is going to do me in. You know, mm-hmm. he's going to do everything in his power to make sure that I fail. And right. there was a lot of men who did not want me there in that department. Um, you know, he turned out to be an amazing training officer. We had a great time, and I've actually used him in a couple books as as a PI. Um, he's a great guy. You know, I mean, there was things like that that you had to overcome a lot. I, I really did have to, to blaze a trail for other women, mm-hmm. and they have several women working there, and not everything was fair. But you know what? Life isn't fair. Right. It would be nice if everything worked out like it should, and, and I should have had the things that were coming to me because I deserved them, not because I had to fight for them, you know, yada, yada, whatever, okay? You know right. what? Get over it, folks. <laughs> um, it, which is not to say that it wasn't easy um, or hard. You know, there was days when I went home and I, I actually cried. You know, I was, I was very upset over things that happened. And, and there was times when I, was, I had the greatest time in the world. Right. Um, but when I turned to fiction, what I found is that when I started writing about this stuff, all of a sudden, that's why I can have this sort of cavalier attitude about what had happened to me because I realized there's just so much more going on in the world than this little thing. I, I did my part. I blazed a trail. There were rough patches. And now I'm writing fiction and I'm having a great time, you know, memorializing some of this, using it in better ways that are, you know, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. That are a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what I want you to do is just to give a contrast. I, you, your other character is um, Sidney Fitzpatrick, who is an FBI forensic artist. And I want you to do a contrast of the two, if you could read from uh, the Bone Chamber. Sure. Right where it says start and then go on the next page where it says stop. Okay. Okay, and you'll see the difference in style. 
or the, you'll hear the difference in style. I hate Plan B, she muttered, glancing past him as the BMW came to a stop. She watched as the passenger exited, following Griffin toward the lobby doors. The man was tall, wearing dark slacks and a sport coat, his pale blue shirt open at the collar. Mirrored sunglasses masked his square face and reminded her of the guard from the Smithsonian. The BMW pulled up the street slightly, just out of sight, with only its back bumper in view. She didn't like the way this looked, the driver waiting, ready for takeoff. Quiet area, few witnesses. The man approached the lobby doors, his hands poised inside his jacket, and she decided that if this was a hit, if he did have a gun, he could easily take out Griffin, then her, and the doorman, who paid them little attention. Time for a distraction, she decided, loosening the belt on her robe, allowing the terry to fly open, revealing her black underwear and bra as she walked. Darling, she called out loud enough for the man to hear, is that you? All at once, the doorman, Griffin, and the man tailing him turned her way, and she put a little extra swing into her step to make sure her rope stayed open. Darling, she called again, seeing the man reaching into his coat toward the small of his back, I seem to have left my key somewhere. The man following Griffin hesitated, and she caught a glimpse of the butt of his gun in his waistband. Griffin turned on his heel but stopped as the lobby door opened, and out stepped the woman with the little tow-headed toddler who fled from his mother's arms, laughing as he ran right between the suspect and Griffin. His mother ran after him. Gianni, Gianni, she called. Vieni a me subito. I'm going to apologize for that Italian, (laughs) Um, since it's not my native language. Sidney's heart thudded at the sound of the child's laughter, directly in the line of fire. Griffin stepped toward the man, stopped when he saw the boy, no doubt worried about the same thing, and what could she do, armed with nothing but a bottle of Prosecco? Maybe she could throw it at him, distract him enough to give Griffin a shot, assuming Griffin was armed. Instead, she stood up to the man, shouting, "'You're late!' He looked at her in confusion, his gaze flicking down to her exposed skin. "'You promised to meet me.' His expression hardened, dismissed her. He turned away again, started to draw his weapon." She came up behind him, grabbed the bottle of Prosecco from her pocket, shoved the top of it into his back, grasped his arm with her free hand, and hoped the Bureau's reputation extended to this country. FBI, capiche? He froze. The mother ran up, grabbed her child, then retreated back into the hotel, blissfully clueless. Reach for that gun, she said, and you die. Aha. Aha. Well, those are certainly two different people, aren't they? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't see Kate, um, you know, walking out in the middle of a, a grand hotel dressed only in a, a silk bathrobe and, uh, bathrobe and la- black lace underwear. Right. <laughs> so, and high yeah, heels. She's, and, and high heels, yeah. yes, yes. Ah, uh, well. So she's in Rome, and this apparently is one of the reasons you created this character, was to have her go to different yes. parts of the world. Sydney. um Sidney Fitzpatrick started off in face of a killer investigating her father's murder. Um, she, The series starts off, she's an FBI forensic artist, and it's the 20th anniversary of her father's death. Mm-hmm. And the killer is about to be executed in 11 days. And she, you know, one of her goals is to go interview the guy and find out why did he do it. And so she does. She goes out to San Quentin, interviews him, and something he tells her makes her think that he might not be the killer. And this, you know, obviously poses several problems. One, if he's not the killer, that means the killer is still out there. If he is the killer, he's going to die in 11 days. She now has 11 days to figure out, is he or is he not, you know, her father's killer. So that starts off the series. 
And, you know, obviously the case in that book gets solved. Then we move on to the bone chamber. And um, this was the reason why I, I created this this series, because in the Sydney, um, excuse me, the Kate Gillespie San Francisco PD series, you know, I live in Lodi. I get to make trips to San Francisco, write it off my taxes, and that's all well and good. But, you know, we're talking, what, an hour and a half, two-hour drive. Right. Um, Plus bridge tolls. Yeah, yeah, bridge tolls, exactly. You know, which is nice to be able to write it off. But I wanted to go to Europe, and I wanted to see something. And I really thought it would be cool if I could write it off on my taxes. And mm-hmm. granted, it's not mm-hmm. a lot, 10 mm-hmm. cents to the dollar. But still. So I made Sidney Fitzpatrick, put her in the FBI, and figured, you know, like on TV, they they get hop on their little jet and they can go places. So in The Bone Chamber, the second book in the series, I have her going to Rome to um, help assist with this this case. And indeed, I assume you traveled to Rome. I did, as a matter of fact. My mother, um, who was a professor, and she she actually lived in Italy for eight or nine years. She was helping me with the um, Italian. She did the language in there, which I, you know, I'm sure totally massacred, but she speaks fluent Italian. And so she helped me with the language and she helped me with the location. So I said, okay, I need a location, you know, high up on a cliff and, and, you know, big lake underneath, yada, yada, that kind of thing. And so she helped me with all these locations. And we got to the point where um, there was a scene that I needed to happen at the airport in Naples. And so I sent it to her via email. She vetted it, sent it back. She says, this is just not going to work. And I said, well, why not? She says, well, you have to understand how the airport's set up. She said, because, you know, and she described it. And, you know, so she told me the way I could make it work. And, and I looked at this, and I'm thinking, oh, this is just not going to work for me. She says, you just need to go there. And I'm thinking, you know, this is why I did the series. And here she's telling me I need to go there. Maybe I should go there. Mm-hmm. So I actually finally made the trip. And I took my mother with me. And we traveled to all the places that are in the book so that I could make sure that I got them right. Well, I'm going to see, uh, let our listeners know the detail. This is a villa, the one you talked about, perched on the cliff. And this is an interior description. But stop there for sure because that's before we get into the room we don't want to talk about. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to think who's even talking here. Um, to show you what makes me infinitely happy. Oh, this is uh, Adami. He's, he's he's a villain. The, he's the villain. He's a villain. He's talking. So he's showing Kate, uh, or excuse me, Sydney something at his villa. He says, um, to show you what makes me infinitely happy. His sweeping gesture included the vaulted fresco ceiling. And as Adami and Sydney rounded the corner of the first landing, she looked up and saw naked cupids flying after thinly draped psyches with butterfly wings. They flitted among curving acanthus vines that ran over the breadth of the ceiling. Farther on, pygmies wearing conical hats and wielding long spears hunted crocodiles and ibises fluttered on lotus-studded Nile, which seemed to cascade down over the cornices that separated the ceiling from the staircase walls on either side of the great hall. As Sydney's eyes followed this painted Nile to its logical source above the center balcony that joined the twin staircases, the elegant grace of the Greco-Roman temples gave way to the squared but equally elegant trapezoidal Egyptian temples with red and gold columns. At the very top, two sphinxes faced each other on either side of a great pyramid. From its central door, the tributaries of the Nile poured, dividing into two rivers, both of which went their separate ways, tumbling down on opposite sides of the double staircase. So is this a, uh, must be a real place. <laughs> this place is actually fictional. Oh, you're kidding. No. With that much detail. Yes. 
Is it a composite? It's a composite of, of many places in Rome, you know, whether it's museums or grand old houses or, you know, something of that sort. Um, and, and again, you know, based on my mother's experience from there, she was able to point these these locations out and and give me this rich history that I don't think I could have gotten if I just showed it myself and, and looked at it. I wouldn't know what I was looking at, and, and I certainly wouldn't know how to, um, you know, describe it. Or, or or put it into a book without her telling me what it was. So mm-hmm. I learned some extremely valuable um, art history lessons from her. Now, you have the um, friend of, well, I guess we can tell people she's been murdered in, in the bone chamber. Right. Whose father is the ambassador to the Vatican. The Holy See. Holy See, the Pope. right. The Pope. Right. And um, she runs out there. Because she gets a phone call that a package has arrived, and it's across the street. And you describe a building with very high windows designed by a famous architect who was murdered in one of the most famous cases, Sanford White. Yes, in New York. In New York, right, with the jilted lovers and all of that. Yes. Um, Is this a real place? That is a real place. My mother um, lived and, and studied at the American Academy in in Rome, mm-hmm. and we actually went to her old room, and it looks out. Um, the there's the kitchen area. It's a, like a c- communal kitchen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you walk out to the kitchen, and you look out, and you're looking over the uh, American ambassador's um, house and gardens. And it was like, oh my gosh, how can you not use this? Right. You know. And so right. yes, the description of the American Academy and the ambassador's residence are accurate. Yes. And, of course, it's important that there be high windows because people can see in as well as out. Absolutely, right. yes. And and they certainly get a view of something pretty alarming from that window. Yes, yes. Yes. Which we won't give away. No. So which of these two characters are you most fond of? Oh, um, that's... Well, a, I know they're like children, Well, right? they are. You know, they're, they're like children. I would say, you know, Kate Gillespie was... You know, when I was working out these, these um, you know, issues I had being the first female officer, I, I, I created Kate Gillespie because at the time, San Francisco PD had not yet had a female homicide inspector. And I thought, how could that be? San Francisco is this amazingly progressive city and, and police department. How do they not have women working you know, in homicide yet. It just seemed inconceivable. And that was, this book came out in 1999. When I was researching it and when I wrote it, it was probably in the, um, between 95 and and 99 when this came out. Mm-hmm. They hadn't yet had a woman. And then um, they did. They finally hired Holly Para. Well, she was already an officer there, right. uh, an inspector. But she was promoted into the um, homicide detail. And Which she, is the elite. That's the elite, absolutely. And so this character was created before Holly actually arrived there. Mm-hmm. And w- what I thought I could do was show people what it was like for a woman to be in this male-dominated profession and what it might feel like, you know, based on my own experiences. Granted, we're talking smaller town right. and, and different experiences, but similarities, you know, still the same. And and you just can't have that many murders in Lodi for it to be believable or it starts turning into the Jessica Fletcher murder she wrote, you know, don't invite this, you know, don't go to this lady's house for dinner because you're going to end up dead kind mm-hmm, of a thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why I picked San Francisco. <laughs> that's right. And there may be several at the yes. dinner party who end up dead. Absolutely. Right? 
That's one of the things. So you have murder and mayhem and terrorists and uh, arcane plots involving uh, 2,000-year-old mysteries. And there's this, you know, sort of an idea that uh, we're doing the, you know, the the Da Vinci Code type of well, secrets. Well, and, and, and not really Da Vinci Code. In in the first series, the Kate Gillespie series, it was, you know, homicides and your the, the typical police procedural things that you might find in any big city. Mm-hmm. But I have always been intrigued by a conspiracy theory because there's usually a little bit of truth right. to that, you know. And, and so I liked taking real pieces of history for my books and then tweaking it and and then using it for the a, a broader plot, you know, to bring danger and intrigue into the stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives it a realistic edge because you're using real history, but you're changing it. So, um, you know, for instance, in Face of a Killer, the real life history that I used was the BCCI, the the Bank of Commerce and something international. I'd have to look it up, and, and unfortunately, it escapes me the name. But I made. Um, this was a, a scandal that happened about 25 years ago. This was the bank that um, a lot of uh, Noriega hit his money in. The CIA used their black ops money. You know, they, they deposited in this bank. Iran, Contra, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, so I used that that basis and then made my own bank and then my own scandals and, and weaved this whole entire mystery around this real-life history. In the Bone Chamber, the book that we were just reading from, the scandal was the um, Masonic Lodge, the um, in, in Italy, mm-hmm. Propaganda Douay, yes, and or known as um, P two, yes. And so I said, "What if you know th- this? This is ma- a real event. This is a real event in the nineteen eighties. The, the Masonic Lodge in Italy almost toppled the Italian government because there was so much graft and backroom dealings going on that, you know, when, when push came to shove, all of a sudden, you know, and, and the Vatican became involved with the Vatican Bank and, um, you know, it, it was there was murder. I mean, this is real life. You, you couldn't ask for better conspiracy theory to weave a book around, and that's what the Bone Chamber was around. Well, you might come up with the idea of a... A famous publicist in Italy who becomes then the head of the country and has deals with the Vatican Bank, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a few years later. Well, exactly. Right. <laughs> that's still going on. That's still going on. Yeah. So, but what if this Masonic Lodge, you know, hadn't been disbanded as history suggests? Mm-hmm. You know that that it's you know, we, we solved this case. You know, the the lodge was closed. It's called. A, it was a black lodge. This was not sanctioned by the the Masons. This is our Masons here today are not anything to do with, you know, the Masons in this lodge. This was um, an unsanctioned black lodge under the guise of the Masons. Right. And, but I'm thinking, okay. So they okay, could tell their wives they were going to a Exactly. A right. You've got to have that place to go to to make it seem legitimate. And so um, I'm thinking, okay, well, what if it wasn't disbanded? What if, you know, today there was something, you know, still going on? Some of the same players, they weren't all caught what would happen, and that was the basis for the bone chamber and the the murder of this forensic anthropologist who was Sidney Fitzpatrick's friend mm-hmm. and who also happened to be an acquaintance of the daughter of the ambassador to the Holy See. Or actually, she was she the, daughter. the daughter. Yeah. yeah, she is the daughter. And and the forensic anthropologist was helping Sidney investigate the daughter's case, and then she ends up being killed right. as a result, So, which is why Sidney goes to Rome. 
because this is her friend who was murdered helping to investigate the case. Now, as I was reading this, um, it seemed like a logical thing to be made into a movie. It has some of the familiar elements. The difference being, of course, it's the female who is wearing the sexy outfits and the tuxedo, you know, <laughs> right, only the right. female version of it, and going to the fancy dress and holding the champagne flutes right. while, you know, having a gun secreted and, you know, that she's carrying in her bag. I, I did have one reviewer say it was the thinking man's Da Vinci Code. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I thought that praise. was a compliment. Yes, yes. I thought that that's was a compliment. <laughs> so where do the ideas come from? I mean, you don't just say, well, I know you wanted to go to Europe, so you went to Italy. Right. Let's talk about this one because we, we're familiar with it. And um, you had uh, – did you read about the historic um, P2 my mother told me about it because oh. this was going on when she lived there. I gotcha. And she said, oh, you should write about this. And when she started telling me about this, I'm thinking, well, this is right up my alley. You've got conspiracy theory. You've got, you know, Freemasons and, you know, that with the whole national treasury or national treasure movie, the Da Vinci Code. Right. You know, all these things were big. And the you pyramid know. on the back. Of yeah, the, the pyramid the on the bill. back. Yeah. And um, I actually had some uh, – a, a little – I guess, pushed in the right direction by um, an author, James Rollins, who is um, an amazing thriller writer. Mm -hmm. And we were riding home from a a writer's conference together, um, sitting next to each other on an airplane. And his book had just been in People magazine. And the conversation was going around, you know, that that people were looking down on the Da Vinci Code. and his book was being compared Looking to Da Vinci down. Code because it wasn't real literature. It wasn't, you know. Um, well, it's popular. It's popular, right. and I think anything that becomes that popular, then all of a sudden you have to have your naysayer saying it's it, it is or it isn't good, and, and they give their opinion. Like Fifty Shades of Grey. Exactly, fifty right. And so then, of course, you know, when a book becomes that popular, it's the way. People have to they they use it to to judge other things. Based on whatever is most popular, because that's your 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 frame of reference, you know mm-hmm. your point of reference. Mm-hmm. You you know is it better than the Da Vinci Code or not better? You know is it like it or not like it? You know whatever the case may be. So James Rollins, um, this question was posed to him at this writers' conference, and he didn't really answer it because he was the moderator of this panel. But he had asked other people, and and they were really upset when their book was being judged. You know as being like the Da Vinci Code because they felt that they were better writers. Really? Yes. And so um, I asked James Rollins, what do you think? I said, you know, what what would you think if somebody compared your book to Da Vinci Code? And he says, I don't care. (laughs) He said, my book's in People Magazine, and they were actually making that comparison in People Magazine. He says, I'm not sure, you know, that if people like it and they enjoy it, why do I care what they compare it to? And Especially something that's well-known and other people are, well, exactly. are talking about. Exactly. Again, yeah. it's that point of reverence. So he said, um, I asked him, I said, or actually I said, you know, it wasn't a, a question. It was a statement that, boy, if I could, you know, write something that, you know, brought in Da Vinci Code to my, my new series, my Sidney sure. Fitzpatrick sure. series, which was not, you know, starting off as an international series. I said, I would do it in a heartbeat. And he said, I can tell you how to do it. And I said, how? And he said... Silence of the man, Silence of the Lambs meets Da Vinci Code, and that's all he said. 
And I, I started thinking about that. And then I said, well, well how do I do that, though? You've got a female FBI agent. Yeah, I've got the female FBI agent. Because that's what he said. You've got the female FBI agent. You can have her do the international travel. He says, but you're going to need that, that intrigue, that conspiracy theory type thing. And so he takes out a, a dollar bill, and he turns it over. And on the back of a dollar bill is um, the pyramid. And it, there's actually a star of David you mm-hmm, can, you can mm-hmm. draw on there. And each of the points in the star... Point it, it spells out the word Mason. I think it's called an is it an anagram or something like that. I, I you know I'm not sure what you pictogram. call that a pictogram. Right. So each of the points of the star spell out the word Mason. He says, "There's your intrigue." He says, "Bring that into your book somehow." He says, "And you've got it." So uh, we happen to share the same editor, and I had already started on the next book. Um, I had just sent in the face of a killer, and it was on her desk and everything. And so I started writing this idea, and I didn't tell her what I was doing. And I got about halfway through, and I started getting a little scared, thinking, maybe I better kind of mention that I've gone, you know, a a complete 180 from this police procedural type stuff that I was writing to this international thriller with conspiracy theory type stuff in it. And so I sent her, you know, this email, and I said, okay, this is all James Rollins' fault. But he said I should do Da Vinci Code meets Silence of the Lambs, and I brought in this, you know, Masonic connection and and the P2 thing and everything, and she emailed back about two seconds later and said, I love it! <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's marketable. Okay, yes. we need to do a break. You are listening to Word by Word on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where tonight's conversation is with writer Robin Burcell, who, before she wrote the Kate Gillespie mystery series and Sidney Fitzpatrick thrillers, worked as a police officer, detective, hostage negotiator, and FBI-trained forensic artist. So stay tuned for more detailed insights about the clever criminals and dastardly international terrorists populate the pages of Robin's award-winning books like Cold Case and Deadly Legacy and her newest novel, The Kill Order, which will be released this January. Okay. Now, one of the things we were talking about before the break was how you had come up with this 180-degree shift of the, I guess we'll call it the format or the the genre that you were writing. Right. And in addition to the shift of locales, there is a decided shift in the character because she had been, in many ways, was considered to be a by the book, follows the rules, will take, you know, direction. Sidney Fitzpatrick. Sidney Fitzpatrick. Right. And in this next book that came out, which was The Bone Chamber, she is not that person anymore. She is a, she's angry. Yes. She's determined. Yes. She's uh, willing to flaunt authority. Yes. Yes. And there's a reason for that, because in Face of a Killer, as you said, she was a rule follower. She was very black and white. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this this was her nature, her personality. And one of the lessons she learned there was that sometimes it's okay to bend the rules to get, you know, to, to serve justice. Right. That's not meaning that, you know, you're going to just do whatever you want. She's still, you know, at least in Face of a Killer, still somewhat of a, a rule follower. Um, but what happens is that when she follows the rules— it ended up endangering her and her family. You know, they, they almost lost her life. So in the opening of the well, bone they do chamber... Well, have a, a death in the family. Well, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But 
um, in in the book. I'm sure it shouldn't have given that away. Oh no, because the the book opens up with the the, yeah. the murder of her father, and that happened 20 years previously. Right. So you know that's that's fine. Um, but in the bone chamber, now we've got sort of the new Sidney Fitzpatrick. You know, she she has made a decision. She's moved from San Francisco to Quantico. She's teaching forensic art at the FBI Academy mm-hmm. based on, you know, the forensic art course that I took at the FBI Academy. And she's happy with this life. She's happy to be in the basement at Quantico teaching forensic art, doing the, you know, occasional cold case without going out there. She does not want to endanger her family. She wants to do anything she can to keep her family away from danger. And so, <laughs> like I said, being in the basement is perfectly fine for her. So the book, of course, opens up with, um, you could say she's definitely the reluctant hero. Um, Zachary Griffin is this covert agent who shows up at the FBI Academy and wants her to do a sketch. And mm-hmm. she says, sorry, can't do it because it's Thanksgiving and I'm going to be home with my family. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts. Because family has become much more important. Exactly. That's what she, that was the lesson she learned in Face of a Killer, that family comes first, foremost, and always. So um, she... So Cindy takes a, a flight home, and she lands at San Francisco Airport, and she's met by San Francisco police officers, and they immediately direct her to a plane that leads her right back to Quantico again. A private and plane. A private plane. Right. And she's back at Quantico, and she finds herself in a locked room doing, you know, she's sitting there, and the only thing there is Zachary Griffin, her, her sketchbook, and a skull. Right. And she needs to do a sketch based on some um, notes left by her um, anthropologist, forensic anthropologist friend, um, and, and, and create a person's face based from this skull. That's how the story opens. Right. And the interesting backstory for that is this person, they're not sure who it is they think they know. They think they know, yes. But the face has been removed. Right. The fingerprints have been removed. Right. And this particular person is adopted and has no DNA because someone's cleaned out the apartment. Right. So they can't go and get they, hair Yeah, they, they or, just can't. Right, yeah. exactly. It's, there, there's just no way they can identify this person. And the only hope is that Sydney can do a, a sketch of the face. So naturally, um, you know, she she becomes curious about why all the secrecy over this and why is it so guarded? Why did it have to be done right now? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this sort of thing. But also, why are there only notes from the forensic anthropologist? Normally, she would be working side by side with this woman. She would be right there directing her on how, you know, the depth of the, the tissue on the face and, and, and that sort of thing. Now, let me understand, having seen this on TV, basically you have a boiled skull. Right. It's a and clean there, skull. Just there are there. certain um, consistent, depending on the age approximation. The age, the, weight, race. There's, there's levels of fat pish, tissue right. and skin that are on top of the skull. Right. And the muscles that fit, you know configure the face, except yes. for something as someone who's been damaged, you know, in an earlier time rather exactly. than before death, and that you're able to then reconstruct from that based yes. on those measurements. Yes. Yeah. Sort of and back so, to Leonardo da Vinci. In exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So she has the measurements on paper, but no forensic anthropologist. She right. begins to, you know, she gets a little suspicious. Why isn't she here? Well, it turns out the forensic anthropologist was killed in a hit and run. Just an accident, you know, but a hit-and-run accident. Now, all of a sudden, though, it's like, well, wait a minute. Hit-and-run, that's a little too convenient. What's going on? Mm-hmm. 
you know, she was killed because she was working on this case. Somebody doesn't want this woman identified. So Sydney sets out to identify the woman, even though they now know who she is, because once they saw her face, the drawing of it, you know, it confirmed in their minds. But they're off in the sunset. Zachary Griffin, the covert agent, he's gone. He's off to do his investigation. But Sydney's like, whoa, my friend is dead because of this case. Mm -hmm. And I want to know why. Mm -hmm. So she flies off to Rome. And well, no, she does something first. Let's not go to Rome oh, yet. Okay. okay. There's something interesting that happens because in addition to the measurements, there's a picture of the crime scene. Oh, you're absolutely right. And in the background, yes. there's a distinctive a building. corner of a building corner with a of a red building. sandstone. Red sandstone. Yep. And so Sydney has to do a little investigation because she figures if she can find out where this murder took place, she might be able to figure out who was killed and possibly why. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she used to be a police officer in Sacramento way back when, before she became an FBI agent. So she uses her police skills and her connections with the police department to, you know, do some, dig up some info. And the Internet. And the Internet. And, and on the Internet, she starts looking up red sandstone and discovers the most famous red sandstone building in that area is the Smithsonian Museum. The castle. The castle. Right. And it turns out that's where... Um, this woman was killed. So then, of course, it's just a matter of time before she figures out, you know, the details on the murder, and then she ends up in Rome. <laughs> right. Well, the funny thing about this is Griffin, her, who works for some agency we're not really quite sure Right. Of. It's an agency that Something doesn't exist that on has, paper. does not exist but has letters. Yes. But we don't know which letters. <laughs> Pick any four. Yeah. And uh, he picked her finally over, you know, she's not his first choice because she's far away and all this stuff, but she's, a, you know, follows the book and the rules. Right. And that immediately shifts as soon as she gets suspicious about the death of her friend. Exactly. Now, all of a sudden, it's back to rules were meant to be bent right. when it comes to, you know, serving justice. Because if she follows the rules, she plays by the rules, she's never going to find out who killed her friend. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a balancing act for her. And, you know, she still has morals, a, a, a definite moral compass. But sometimes, you know, we need to kind of like turn the, the needle on that compass a little bit to make sure, you know, that the case gets solved. Okay, let's shift on to the one that's coming out in January, the kill order. The kill order, yes. How much of that do you want to give us a basic background of the story? Where are we now? Where is she? Who's she working with? Well, um, she's still working with this um, covert alphabet agency. It's called ATLAS, and it's, you know, I'm trying to remember what the acronym stands for. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even remember it. It's, it's not so the man secret. carrying the world. In, no, or, it's not the man right. carrying the world. It's um, something to do with uh, threat level assessment and security um, you know, Do you remember the man from Uncle? Yes. Yeah. Do yes. you remember what Uncle stood for? Because I can't. You know, I can't. But that was kind of <laughs> when I was making Atlas, I had Man from Uncle in the back of my right. mind. And I was a big man from Uncle and girl from Uncle, hence right. the uh, dark turtleneck that I always wanted to wear when I was um, wanted to be a spy. So, yes, that was in the back of my mind. Atlas does not exist on paper. Um, and they're covert agents. They're sort of a, an offshoot branch, something in between the CIA and um, NSA, Homeland Security, and Homeland NSA. Yeah, right. yeah, you know, they're all under the it DOJ umbrella. It was created umbrella. after 2011. It, it, absolutely, yeah, right. yes. And, you know, for that very reason. Um, and so they, they have a little more autonomy than, say, the CIA does. You know, they can do things. Um, they can bend the rules when it needs to be bent, as long as it's for the good of the country and for the people. So, where where is she going to go this time? Okay. Oh, that's right. We were talking about the kill order. I certainly got <laughs> off track. <laughs> that's all right. 
she's still working for that agency. She's still working. Well, she's still working for the FBI. Pays her bills. But what you find when I write my books, each of my books, whether it's Face of a Killer, The Bone Chamber, The Dark Hour, The Blacklist, or the upcoming The Kill Order. They can all be read separately. You can pick one up and read it out of order, and it's not going to ruin anything. However, if you were to read them in order, you would find out that something that happens in the kill order is a direct result of something that takes place in face of a killer. Mm-hmm. This this very first case that Sydney was involved in, involving her father and his murder, and you know black ops and covert government agents and that sort of thing. And so there's a running thread throughout that we get to find out in the kill order, you know, a little more about that whole murder and and Atlas and the fact that Zachary Griffin might have actually known or heard about Sydney before she even realized it. So Well there's also, isn't there a tie in I'm I'm getting an impression since some of this takes place in San Francisco and there's a San Francisco homicide detective, that there might be some cross-pollinization yes. in the future, at least. On the book that I'm working on now, right. Kate Gillespie is going to be assisting Sidney Fitzpatrick with a murder and <laughs> 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 a case that actually um, took place in every move she makes. Hilliard Pharmaceuticals uh-huh. was um, the big, you know big pharmacy agency that I use as a backdrop, big pharma for the backdrop for the murder. And it also happens to be the same pharmaceutical agency that was involved in Paris in the dark hour, in the death of a um, a CIA agent, and which Sidney and uh, Griffin are investigating. And so I was trying to find a way to tie these two characters together, you know, in, in a book, bring them together. And I thought, well, I've used this pharmaceutical agency twice. Why not bring them back for that? You know, what else is there about this agency that maybe – or this, this um, company, this pharmaceutical company that we don't know about? And Big Pharma is, you know, right up there with conspiracy theory. So we're going to find some way to tie it together. Yeah. I just haven't figured it out well, yet. Well, you have bioterrorism <laughs> in this other book too. Yes. You know, which yes. is Big Pharma too. Yes, absolutely. So we didn't actually – I've still, not to get you back on track again, the kill order. So what is the um, – What's like, it about? What do we call it? Well, what's the MacGuffin? The MacGuffin. Okay. You know, that's a good question because – oh, I know. I know this is a reprint of something you'd written a little while ago. I mean, a paperback version, right? No, 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 no. This well, is this brand is new. original. This is not first out. time. First time. Oh, okay. Not See, out. I'm making this horrible assumption yes. that paperback because no. you had your other books out. No, and, no, no, no. Yeah. Right. Um, so we this need is... to talk about changes of publishers too and how advantageous that is. Exactly. Um, so anyway, in in the kill order, um, the tagline on the front of the book is "Possess the code, destroy the world," and I'm I'm going to read. Um, the back, the, okay. the two sure. paragraphs, the that's okay. What you don't know can kill you. FBI Special Agent Sidney Fitzpatrick knows nothing about the Devil's Key, except that her father was involved in its theft 20 years ago and was murdered as a result. The Devil's Key, a list of seemingly random, supposedly indecipherable numbers, poses an immediate threat to national security, and anyone caught with this code in their possession is terminated with extreme prejudice. Sydney, unaware of the standing kill order, only just received the list and turned it over to her superiors, but not before making a copy. What you do know can kill you. Now the hard drive containing the list's data has been compromised, and two civilians are dead. But Sydney's not the only one in danger. When a young woman with eidetic memory sees the numbers, 
Sydney and her partner, Zachary Griffin, must protect her and what she knows at all costs. For if the code falls into enemy hands, it could devastate the entire country's infrastructure and even ignite a world war. Now, I, I picked up this code. Um, this is the code that she actually finds in face of a killer. Mm-hmm. But at the end that's of that the first, book, that's the first, the first the book, in the, exactly, book, we don't know what those numbers are. She solves the murder. The mystery solved, but we don't know what those numbers are. That was the MacGuffin in that book. Gotcha. Okay? So those numbers reappear. They're mentioned a few times throughout the other books, but they reappear in a big way in the kill order. And those numbers um, are taken from uh, – there, there's um, computer chips that actually have a back door already built into them mm-hmm. and Stuxnet. I'm sure yes, you've probably yes. heard of Stuxnet. Yeah, and, you it was know, very a, big in the newspaper yes, a few months ago. Yes, 60 Minutes. Right. Um, I would advise anybody who's really interested, look it up on there's on YouTube. You can find the 60 Minutes episode and, you know, learn all about Stuxnet. And, and, and Stuxnet is a um, like a, a computer virus or a Trojan that's already in these computer chips. And basically, if you have a computer, you, you're, you're vulnerable. And the problem is that the United States, our infrastructure is filled with, you know, this Trojan, as are other countries and nuclear warheads, you know, everything from, from you know, weapons to the stoplights. ATM machines. ATM yep. machines, yep. exactly. So, um, you know, that's... So if the Congress doesn't shut down the country... Someone who knows these codes could. Right, right, yes. Technically, they could, you know? Right. So that's what that book's about. Okay, well, we've got a few minutes here, and, I, and one of the things I like to do, because a lot of our listeners are writers or want to be writers or think this would be, you know, something to do in their spare time when they have twins. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so tell us about the, the what happened. I noticed the, the copy I have of The Bone Chamber was put out by Poison Pen Press, and you had, uh, I assume your romance uh, books were done with a different Harper. publisher. No, they're Harper. same. They're I'm, all Harper. They're all imprints all of Harper. All my books are, okay. are imprints of Harper, with the exception of the, the, the two hardcovers, which was, um, that you can find in the library, The Bone mm-hmm. Chamber and Face of a Killer. Because they were put out in library bindings, is that in, why? Yes. Yeah. So Poison Pen did a special library edition, mm-hmm. but the books are actually published by HarperCollins. Okay. That's good to know. Yes, and you and you're award winning. You're um, you now get to wear a mantle of some velvet, <laughs> you know, with a key. I, I get a gold to a, star. Is yes, that what it is? <laughs> I get a gold star. Um, th- the books are um, winners of um, the, the first series Anthony Award, mm-hmm. and um, it's a you know big the the world Batracon World Mystery right, Convention right. gives out the Anthony Award for these books. Um, one's a Barry Award, which is through Deadly Pleasures magazine, and um, then a McCavity nominee, right. which is here in the Bay Area, um, Janet Rand- uh, Rudolph. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, she has something called uh, International. Um, International. Oh, my mind's gone blank, and I'm, I'm going to have to look that up. Um, and, and so, anyway, she has these awards called the McCavity Awards. Yes. And it was nom- one of the books was nominated for a McCavity Award. Um, Face of a Killer received a starred review from Library Journal, so that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. That was my first starred mm-hmm. review. And, you know, they've been well-received, yeah. so I'm, I'm happy. Right. And Harper's happy. 
Harper's happy. Right. Yeah. You have an editor you work with the same person on each book, is that right? Or you've had different editors? I've had different editors. The The romance was a completely different editor. And then when I switched over to um, to the mystery, I had an editor at Harper for the first three books. And then from Cold Case on to the next uh, five, six books um, is my editor, Alyssa Kirsch, who's mm-hmm. with Harper. Awesome. Now, what does the editor do now for someone who is an established writer? They see the big picture. They read the story, you know, and they, they write the little corrections, you know, if you've got some sentence structure or there's something that's, um, you know, not understandable. So a line editor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she does line editing, but she also does big picture editing. So she'll write a letter and she'll say, you know, the story's really good, but, you know, I don't understand this thread going from here to here. And I think it would be stronger if you maybe thought about, you know, giving some a more background. Editing. Right. She does the story editing. And and so that's really helpful. But she also catches those things that um, the the lapses of logic. For instance, <laughs> in yeah. I think it was the blacklist. Um, my uh, I have two characters going to they're in Kenya, and um, they're trying to rescue a couple of other operatives who have been kidnapped. And they see um, they they see one of the drivers paying off. Um, these bad guys who are taking their friends away. And so they stop the driver in his, you know, cush, white, four-wheel drive and kind of rough him up a little bit, find out where they're taking him. And then they leave this guy in his cush, four-wheel drive and go find another guy in this beat-up truck that they've used before because, you know, they'll have permission to use this truck. And she writes... Why didn't, didn't they, they just, just take, take the, the white, four-wheel drive? Right. <laughs> that was head full of gas Exactly. Tank. Yeah. I mean, the guy's a bad guy, you know? Right. He's, he's just paid for the kidnap. Have him take the vehicle, for gosh sake. So, you know, and there are things that you, you're you riding along, and, and don't ask me why it didn't occur to me, but I guess because it was stealing, you know? It's bad to steal a car, <laughs> and these are good people. I don't know. You can you rough know? up the guys and yeah. do that, but don't steal the car. And then other times it's sentence structure. So yes. I had um, in... I think it's in the kill order. Uh-huh. Um, Sydney is is uh, shooting on a range, and the trigger pull for her gun is off because she her gun's been taken away because she was in a shooting before, and and they always take away your gun and, when you've been in a yeah, shooting, and then give you a replacement, right. you know, while they do the investigation. Right. So anyway, the the armorer is um, you know doing something with a trigger pull, and so he's stripping down and fixes a trigger pull. And then gives her back the gun. And the editor says, is he stripping down or is he stripping down the gun? And it was like, oh, yeah. Oh, whoops. That, is, that little comma. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. You right. know. That's so, right. yeah, you just add a little word and all of a sudden, you know, or a comma, and it changes the entire sentence. And, I mean, really, it was it's hilarious when you're looking at it. But can you imagine if it had gone out, you know? Yeah. 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 So. All right. Now, let one more thing. As I said, mentioned, I, we have lots of writers out there. What advice do you have for writers? Read, of course, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, who hasn't heard that one before? Um, I, I teach a writing class, uh, an extension class at University of the Pacific right now. Oh. And, and I'm co-teaching with um, on, Scott on Evans. campus in Stockton? In, in their, one of their satellite campuses, yes. Okay. And I was just at the class last night, and um, we were discussing one of the things that I do that helps me when I write is one of the things, 
don't write, you know, it's like painting. Writing's like painting. You don't want to paint every brick on the wall. You want to just suggest that there's bricks on that wall and then give me some depth, you know, the tree, the crow sitting on top, the shadows, that sort of thing. And the other thing is take your favorite author, take a highlighter pen, um, and different colors of highlighters, and start marking up that book like a textbook and deconstruct it and find out how the author did it. This is how the author introduces a new character. This is how the author um, presents, you know, a, a MacGuffin or a red herring or flashback, you know, or, you know, gets important information out, whatever the case is, and, you know, treat it like a textbook, you know, that you would if you were learning history or something. So th- that's my best advice. That's good advice. Robin Bursell, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. And, oh, if anybody has any um, questions, they could certainly go to my website, robinbursell.com, and there's an email link on there and also information about me and the books. And the books. You have been listening to Word by Word on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where tonight's conversation was with writer Robin Bursell, the former police officer, detective, hostage negotiator, and FBI-trained forensic artist, and writer of the Kate Gillespie Mystery Series and the Sidney Fitzpatrick Thrillers. We were looking forward to the January release of Robin's newest Sidney Fitzpatrick thriller, The Kill Order. Our engineer for tonight's word-by-word broadcast is Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti. And I'm your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to our next word-by-word conversation with the writer's show that will air on KRCB-FM at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, November 6th. Our guest will be the best-selling novelist Jamie Ford talking about his latest book, set in Seattle's historic Chinatown, Songs of Willow Frost. Until then, Robin Bursell and I and all the staff and volunteers at North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, wish you a mildly spooky yet safe and sane Halloween. <laughs>